Stu forgot the offering. He was afraid he was going to get fired. So he put it in. Hey, Stu, those lights are, we're having lightning trouble. Uh, I can't even see anybody's eyeballs. Oh, I see it. Hey, man, there you are. Good. Hey, gang, I'm glad you're here. I want you to take your Bible this morning. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17, okay? I hope you brought your Bible. And I want you to turn there in a few moments. We'll be reading, here we go, a rather large passage of Scripture. I want to make a statement to you as we begin today um, because we're going to be on a theme for the next several weeks. But I want to start maybe with uh, the next three weeks in one statement, okay? Church, I want you to know that, that there's a difference between fearing God and following Christ. You understand that? There's a difference between, maybe even an eternal difference, between fearing God and following Christ. We live in a culture today where a lot of people invoke the word God. I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired a little bit of our politicians at the end of whatever they say, end of their speech, they're always saying, God bless the United States of America, when they may not even know who he is. And so what I want to do today is I want to challenge us a little bit, and the whole idea is that there is a difference between fearing God and following Christ. In the next few weeks, you and I will be going to the polls And we'll be casting our vote for what I believe may be as crucial, if not the most crucial election than we've ever had. Okay, we're going to cast our ballots for, well, not just the President of the United States, but all the way down to local government. But certainly, we're going to be throwing our votes toward one man. At least I hope you'll go. And I hope you'll vote. It's your responsibility as a Citizen of the United States, it's your right to do that, and I hope that you'll do that, okay? Again, I, I don't have the right to tell you who to vote for. I would never do that. Some say I get dangerously close, okay? I'm not gonna, I would never do that, okay? But I think I do have the right to challenge you how to vote, okay? I think I have the obligation to challenge you, first of all, to, to pray through and to think through your selection, okay? I have the right to challenge you to consider your decisions in light of your Christian values and in light of biblical Christianity. We call that having a biblical worldview, okay? I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago, and the person told me, he said, well, I'm not even sure I'm going to vote this time. And, uh, and he said, uh, we really don't have any good decisions, good candidates. I don't know about that. You know, I don't know if we do or not, but I'll tell you one thing I, I believe is that we should vote. And I believe that each one of us have the responsibility to not only vote, but to vote Christian values. I do say, I, in the next two, two or three weeks, I don't want to become political because I'm not going to do that, but I am going to challenge you in some areas, I hope, of your life and let the Holy Spirit guide you and lead you, okay? Here's what I do think, and this may be about as political as I get over the next three weeks. 
I believe that those two men that are running for President of the United States, they've given us enough of their positions and enough of their beliefs that we can go to the Bible and we can somehow, as tough as it may be, sift through for a biblical position to take. I believe there's been discussions, and at least for me, there's been discussions enough on the issue of, of debt. I, I believe that the person that we elect is going to influence our nation for generations to come. I believe this person's going to influence the, 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 the future of my children and my grandchildren. And gang, I believe there's been enough espoused, enough talked about, that we can at least evaluate the people based upon what they've told us to make some kind of an informed, I believe spiritual, biblically centered decision. For example, things like debt. Uh, I don't know if that concerns you or not, but I have to tell you, Debt is a major concern in my heart. I don't believe that you can keep spending money that you don't have, money that's not yours, money that comes from, from uh, China and other places and continue to function. I'm looking for someone who really understands is concerned about debt. Furthermore, I, I also feel like that, that there's been enough talked about that has to do with uh, homosexuality that we can make an informed biblical decision on. I believe that abortion is a major, major issue today. And I believe that as a believer of Jesus Christ, I believe that I can make a decision on who to vote for based upon positions of abortion. Now, let me, let me say this before I move into the scriptures, okay? I don't believe that this election can be about a party. Uh, when you go to the polls to vote, I want to challenge you not to vote Republican, and I want to challenge you not to vote Democrat. I want to challenge you to vote Christian, okay? And uh, I believe that's what we're to do. I believe that's what God would have us to do. Furthermore, I don't think this election should be about personality. I don't care about who looks better or who sounds better, who uh, presents a better package. I don't think it ought to be about personality. Furthermore, I don't think that this election should be about past traditions. I believe we ought to have enough sense to realize that the past is history, the future is a mystery, and God has called me to live today evaluating these men based upon my convictions as a Christian and vote accordingly, okay? And I want to challenge you as you pray through. I would never, like I said, I would never tell you to vote for, but I do believe that you can make a, a uh, decision led by the Holy Spirit on who you should vote for in this coming election, okay? Now, having said that, I, I want us to do several things over the next couple of weeks. I want to look at different people who have been placed in difficult situations and made decisions based upon who God was in their life, not based upon circumstances that they found themselves in or based upon pressures that they may endure. I, today, for example, in Acts 17, we're going to talk about Paul, Paul when he went to Athens, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that in a few moments. Next week, we're going to go to the book of Daniel, and I want to talk to you about Daniel and the lion's den, and then after that, we're going to stay in the book of Daniel. I want to talk to you about the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. All of these are individuals like you and I. 
that were faced in a very difficult situation, they had to determine who God was in their life. And they had to make decisions based upon who God was. And gang, I believe today as never before, those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ, we must stand and be accounted for. We talk about coming out of the closet. I think it's time for Christians to come out of the closet. I think it's time for Christians to stand up and say, this is what I believe as best I understand God's word. And though it may kill me, this is what I am going to do. So help me God. Martin Luther did that. It cost him his life. But because of him, God used him to bring in and usher in the great reformation of which we're beneficiaries today. So today what we're going to do is we're going to go to Acts 17. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul in Athens. Okay? You may say when you leave, well, that had nothing to do with politics. Well, let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do this next week. Maybe it will. Paul goes to Athens, and he's by himself. He didn't have a buddy with him. In fact, they sent him ahead. And so he goes to this town of Athens. Athens used to be a very significant place. At this time, it had lost some of its significance. Okay? But it was still pretty, pretty big, I guess, in some respects. There was about 10,000 people living in Athens. There were 30,000 gods. Think about it. Some said, some theologians said it was easier to find a God in Athens than a person. Paul goes to Athens, this town of 10,000 people with 30,000 little gods. He rocks around the town as any sightseer may do, and all of a sudden things begin to happen inside. He begins to get stirred in his heart. The Bible, and we'll look at some words in a moment, he begins to actually get sick over what he sees. And he gets to the point where he has to do something. And we're going to see what God did inside of his heart, and then this morning we're going to see what sermon he preached, and then we're going to see the outcome of it. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word, Acts chapter 17, beginning verse 16, okay? Acts 17, beginning verse 16. It's a long passage, but it's a good sermon. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked. We're going to come back to that word. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. There's a difference, dear people, in fearing God and following Christ. For while I was passing through and examined the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. There's a difference, people in fearing God and following Christ. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth 
does not dwell in temples made with hands. This is the beginning of the sermon. I want you to notice how he funnels it narrower and narrower down to a point. I'll, I'll come back to that, but just kind of watch or listen as I read how he narrows it down. Who? God made the world. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children, being then the children of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or the thought of man. And this is where he begins to conclude it up. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Well, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, who, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, how? Well, by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Father, this is an incredible sermon. I don't even feel worthy to speak about it. But it's what you have for us. And God, I pray that your spirit might help us to make some distinctions in the sermon, might help us, God, to realize that, that as men stand for you, while there may be pressures, you're always glorified. And while there may be ridiculed, some will always be changed eternally. We need change in our nation. And the nation must have Christians changing it. Help us understand the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. I want you to keep your Bible open, and I want you to look with me, first of all, in verse 16. i, I tell you what I want to do. I, to help us get our head around maybe what's going on in Paul's spirit, there's a few words I think would be good for us to define. If you look at verse 16, the Bible tells us, first of all, that his spirit was being provoked. The word provoked is a very intense word in the original. It's a word which means to be violently stirred. It's a word which actually pictures someone getting sick to their stomach, sick to the point where they can't almost breathe, they can't rest, they can't stop. It's so stirring to them that they have to do something. As Paul was walking around and, and looking at Athens, he was emotionally overcome. The spiritual darkness was all around him, and he couldn't get away from it. That's what was going on. I tell you, I, I told the first service, we spent two and a half days in Budapest with my family. 
And gang, I'm not the most discerning of people and, and, and all that, but I want to tell you, when, when we drove into Budapest, something dark was there. And it was oppression like I've never fully experienced in my life. It was like I couldn't get away from it. It was like there was darkness all around me. And everywhere we walked, we saw it. And, and it wasn't until we drove out of Budapest that all of a sudden it began to lift away. This is kind of what Paul is experiencing. He walks into Athens, a town of 10,000 people with 30,000 gods. And this oppression, this spiritual darkness just overcomes him, and he gets this sick feeling in his gut, and he knows he's got to do something. Also in verse 16 is the word observing or beholding, depending on your translation. And that clarifies the picture for us because it's the English word theater. So what Paul saw, he knew was fake. It was just a play. Fake people living fake lives, worshiping fake God. And it made him sick. And dear people, I want you to know that we live in a nation today of a theater. Fake people living fake lives, worshiping fake gods. And you may be one of them this morning. Verse 17. You'll notice he couldn't sit still with all the fakery. He found himself, first of all, going to the synagogue of the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Fearing God and following Christ, dear church, is not the same thing. And then he went to the marketplace. Back in, in those, well, even today in Europe, they have big markets on, in Macedonia where my son lives, Wednesday and Sunday, uh, Wednesday and Saturday, is market day. And everybody floods to the markets. I mean hordes and hordes of people. So Paul would go to the synagogue and try to uh, resonate with the people. He, the Bible tells us that he, he would just kind of talk to them. He would interact with them. He would dialogue with them. And then he would go into the marketplace. And anybody that would come by and anybody that would listen, he would try to tell them the story of the Lord Jesus. He ended up on Mars Hill talking to two groups. The first group was Epicurean philosophers. This was a group, much like many today, who believed that pleasure should be maximized and pain should be minimized. Their philosophy was live for today, nothing comes later, so their, their, their common mantra was enjoy. How prevalent it is today in our nation. Man, we don't want problems. We want to enjoy. In fact, it comes from pulpits today. There's no preaching of sin and repentance. There's no preaching of that we need something different in our life. It's all feel good. It's the existentialists of today. Feel good. Enjoy life. There is no God, or if there is, you're a God. The other group was called the Stoic philosophers. They're, this group believed that pain was gain. They taught personal discipline, self-control, where the first group said enjoy it, this group says endure it. Life is nothing. So just grin and bear it. There's no such thing as God or if there is, God's everywhere kind of idea. Follow your reason. Be self-sufficient. Live life with discipline. And so Paul goes and he talks to them. And he preaches to them. And he gives what I believe is a sermon 
so needed for our culture today. Let me tell you how I want to deal with it. I want you to first look with me at the conclusion. We're going we're to back into the sermon. Look at verse 30 and 31. Because I, I want to begin at the end, in a sense, before we even look at the sermon. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul makes two great declarations by God. First, he declares that it is now the time to repent. Gang, listen, God doesn't overlook sin, but God is patient as he works his sovereign plan out. For example, in the Old Testament, we find pictures of Christ all through the Old Testament. The law portrayed for us Jesus. The prophets preached Jesus. And it was a time of ignorance. They didn't quite see it all. And now Paul says that time is gone. Jesus has come. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. And the proof of it is that God has raised him from the dead. Therefore, now is the time. To repent, to get your act together, to understand what's happening. Because the second great declaration by Paul is that God has set a day, a fixed day, a certain day, when he's going to render forth judgment. Now let me say to you this. I believe today, as never before, our nation must repent. But I want you to know that repentance is not to the rank and file, to the regular people of our nation, because the nation is lost. Lost people do what lost people do because lost people are lost. They don't understand. They don't have God. I believe the call of repentance today to our nation is to the church. It's to those of us who believe in who we say have surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. If our nation is going to turn around, if we're going to find the right person to run our country as President of the United States, and if we're going to do it right, and if God's going to restore our nation, it's going to be restored through those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who claim the blood of the Lord Jesus, those who proclaim we are the church of Jesus Christ. And I believe, dear people, we can no longer live the way we want to live. We can no longer live closeted, void of understanding and following the Holy Spirit. It's time for the church to repent. Last Sunday evening, I met with our young men to start a a class with them. And I said to them, I said, you know, gang, somewhere in your life, you've got to get to the point when you're willing to step out and show your colors. I think you can no longer live as someone who gives lip service to Jesus Christ and expect God to bless your life, expect God to bless your family, expect God to bless 
your community, your church, and your nation. I think that if we belong to Christ, it's time to step up and step out for Jesus if we want to see our nation heal. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear and I will heal. Now listen, we say that's for the church, but the church is people. So man, let me tell you, I believe it's you. You, husband. I believe it's you, father. I believe it's you, grandfather, that our nation and your family desperately needs to see step out for God. I believe it's you, dear wife and mother and grandmother, that your family and your nation and your church desperately needs to see you believe that Jesus is worth everything. Young people, I believe it's you who have your whole life to live. I believe you have to be distinct. I believe you have to be different in your school. So that others might see, and a nation might see, and a family and a church might see. There's something different in your life. And Paul is saying to these people, listen, the past, God's been patient. But God's patient no longer. You must repent. And if you don't, then that day that God has set will be a day of divine judgment upon you. And I believe those are strong words. But I believe they're needed words today. Now, let's go to the sermon, okay? Look at beginning verse 23 through verse 29. I, I won't reread it. But I want you to notice how Paul does this. this. This floored me. It's like he started with a very wide funnel, and maybe an inclusive funnel, and then in each statement he makes, he draws it narrower and narrower and narrower to a point when he draws the net, he calls for some kind of decision. First of all, look at verse 24. Here's what he says about God. He says, God is creator. This unknown God that you don't know about, let me tell you about him. He's the one who created everything. He made everything. He says that creation screams the glory of God. He wanted them to know, and I want you to know, there's enough in creation for anyone to say there, is, there must be a God. There has to be someone larger than myself, bigger than any philosophy or idea. God never leaves himself without a witness, beloved. And the first witness is God as creator. They understood that. They didn't like it, but they had to understand it. Do you understand it today? But not only is God creator, verse 25, God is sustainer. Not only does God create it, but God keeps it. The world exists and continues existing, not because of a philosophy, not because of some man-made teaching, but the world turns by God. God creates it. God sustains it. 
Verse 26, God ordains it. Now here's where it gets tight for them. God creates it, God keeps it, but God controls it. Paul tells them that nations rise and fall, kingdoms rise and fall, leaders rise and fall, and can I tell you today, presidents come and go at the bidding of God. God determines the seasons of life. Now, beloved, I believe this is a very important election. Here's the lights again. I believe that all of us are going to be called upon and held accountable to who we vote for. But in a larger sense, it really makes no difference who becomes president because God is in control, amen? God is sovereign. And as Paul is preaching this sermon, he said, listen, God creates it, God sustains it, but listen, dear people, God ordains it. Whatever happens, happens because God allows it. He wants them to look beyond their teaching, look beyond their brains, look beyond their knowledge, and look spiritually into the face of God. And then verse 27 is where he really causes them to have to make some kind of decision. God creates it. God sustains it. God ordains it. And then he says in verse 27, God is Savior. Here's where he draws the net. He wants them to know that if God creates and keeps and controls his earth and everyone on the earth, then people ought to seek to know God. It's our responsibility to grope. He said, he's not far from any of us. And because of the the revelation of God all around us, there ought to be a sense by which we grope for him and understand him and seek to understand him so that we might submit and follow after him. God's general revelation of himself makes us obligated to search and also makes us unexcusable on the day of judgment. Now beginning in verse 32, I want to show you the response. Look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we'll hear this again. But some men joined. Dear people, every time a preacher tries to preach the Bible. Anytime a preacher tries to share the message of God, there's always going to be one of three decisions. Here, the first group sneered. It's a word which means to throw out the lip. What they basically said, this is a bunch of junk. I don't need this. I don't like it. I don't believe it. I want to live my life the way I want to live. I'm not interested in what a preacher or a word of God says. I've got plans of my own life. I've got a purpose to my own life. I don't really care what you say. Let me explain to you something about Christianity. And you may not hear it. If you're a a person who likes to listen to sermons on TV, you may not hear this. I had someone tell me not long ago that they didn't really believe in coming to church, that they got up and turned on TV and they got all everything they needed 
from the TV. Well, that's a lie. You can't get it. But then when the person told me who they listened to, I thought, that's really a lie, you know? Here's what you don't hear, but here's what the Bible says, okay? Christianity does not begin by saying you're a good person. And everything is going to be okay. Christianity doesn't say this is your best life now and it's going to get better. The Bible doesn't say that. Christianity, true Christianity, begins by saying you have failed God because you're a sinner. And if you fail to find God, then judgment is surely coming. And the one who will judge will be that one appointed by Almighty God, he that was raised from the dead, he that, that was born of a virgin, he that lived sinless, he that died vicariously as a substitute upon the cross, he who was raised in power by Almighty God, he that sitteth upon the throne that makes preparation to come, and he will judge this world in righteousness. That's biblical Christianity. It is not this Epicurean or Stoic philosophy where you have to grin and bear or you have to go after the good life and feel good and live it up and enjoy it. That's not biblical Christianity. That's why Paul was attacked. That's why Paul preached God. Biblical Christianity says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Biblical Christianity says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Biblical Christianity says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that none of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There are always going to be some who will sneer, and some who will reject, and some who will go their own way to their own destruction and eternal damnation. You may be in that group. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm wasting my time. That's your choice. I was driving somewhere the other day and I saw a sign on a church and it said, eternity is sure a long time to live with a mistake. Second group, Neglected. They said, you know, that's interesting. Maybe today that's where you're at. You know, you know that kind of, that's interesting a little bit. I, I believe in God. And maybe, maybe there is this day coming when there'll be judgment. I don't know. I'm interested. I think, I'll, I think I need to chew on it. Nothing wrong with that. And God may give you that opportunity. But the whole time you're waiting, just be aware that you have one foot slipping into hell. Because no one's promised it tomorrow. You don't know what happens tomorrow. I just know what's happening right now. You know, I may walk out of those doors and gone, you know. And yet some accepted. Every once in a while, isn't it beautiful how the light comes on? And all of a sudden you realize, you know, this is really it, isn't it? And I wondered about this God who created the mountains. I wondered about this God who... The Bible says, loves me. And all of a sudden, it begins to make sense. Here, there was we know of at least two. Some have suggested four. We know that no church got planted in Athens. So Paul really didn't 
see a lot happen. But there were two. And at least two said, you know, this makes sense. This is what I need. One of them was a leader. I mean, visible guy. And he changed his life. In my morning quiet time, I, I'm reading in, in Samuel about uh, Samuel anointing David as king. And what struck me in that reading this week is that, that uh, you know, God had rejected Saul and, and God told Samuel to, go to the go to Jesse and he would have a new king under the line of Jesse. And, and Samuel kind of struggled with that and he said go and ultimately boiled down to young David and, and Samuel publicly in the sight of everybody anointed David king. But you know what really hit me was? Guess who was still king? Saul. God had rejected him, but Saul was still leading the nation. Samuel had to make a decision. He had to decide whether he was going to be a God follower, that what God told him to do, he was going to obey. And he did it knowing it could very well cost him his life. But God was more important. And oh, dear people, God's more important. Sunday night as we were sitting around the table, we were talking about counterfeit gods and we defined what a counterfeit god was and, and, and I made the statement that, that somewhere along the life you've got to step out. I mentioned that earlier. You've got you to uh, uh, step out of the closet for who you really are. And God has to be first in your life. One of the young men said, wait a minute. Does that mean God has to be higher in my life than my family? That's a good question. And I said to him, young man, that's a tough question. The answer is yes. God has to be first in your life. And I want to challenge you dads. And I want to challenge you moms. And I want to challenge you teenagers to realize that God must be first if you're going to get his power. You're going to receive his guidance if our nation is going to change. Let me just close out. Remember, fearing God, following Christ is not the same. Being religious and being spiritual is not the same. When Paul was preaching, he called the Athenians to a decision. And it wasn't an invitation. It was a divine command. You must repent. Jesus, when he went around preaching, he says you must repent. Okay? The Bible teaches that reason, the reason people don't believe is not because of intellectualism. It's not because of rationalism. It's because of moral, spiritual darkness in the heart. The fool has said in, in his heart, there is no God. Today you have to decide if there is a God. And you have to decide just how important he is in your life. And you're going to have to decide if he's worth you standing up for in a world that's increasingly rejecting him. Here's what I want you to know about me. Though they slay me, I stand for God.
Joshua in his old age said, you choose this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my family, we're going to serve God. And I want to tell you, God has my total allegiance. If they come through those doors one day and say, you can't preach what you want to preach, I'll just tell them, arrest me. You're going to lose your tax status. Take it. I believe, as never before, the time is now for us to stand. Well, that's all I got. Next week we'll go into Daniel a little bit, okay? Let's pray together. Stu's going to come, and we're going to have a time of, I guess we're going to call it invitation, although Paul didn't. Paul demanded a repentance. And so after I pray and we stand, and Stu will lead us, maybe your life needs some changing. Maybe you've been compromising. Maybe that time is gone. Maybe... You've never really truly given your life to Christ, and God's convicted you about that. I'd invite you to come and maybe get that right. Or maybe you'd like to join, help us try to carry a faithful message as best we can, as imperfect as we are. Father, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to realize it's the power of God unto salvation. Help us to stand on that truth even if it costs us our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. You have a decision to make. If Stu begins to leave, why don't you just simply come and we'll help you.